when we get to Philippians, Philippians is one of the most joyous letters he writes. And that is the one where he's pretty sure he's done. He's actually pretty sure at that point that he's, 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 uh, he's going to die. Now, he may or may not be right about that. We'll find out. But he seems pretty sure about it. He seems to think that's what's going to happen. And yet it's one of the most joyous letters he writes. So being in prison, being uncertain, doesn't make him fearful. Um, and I suspect there's a degree to which it was interesting. Uh, some of us were just talking, Pastor Matt, um, the pastor at Paragon here, he um, just brought back his son from Ethiopia. And I texted, and he had me teach here a little bit while he was gone. And um, at one point, I, I, was Facebook, I was Facebook messaging with him, and I just said, so, you know, how are you doing out there? You know, how's it going? And are you lonely? And he, he said, you know what's interesting? He said, I, I am. You know, I miss my family. And he said, but I feel like for the first time in a long time, I've been able to kind of catch a breath. And, and rest a little bit. And I told him, well, that is a command, so when you get back, we should work on that. Um, but he, um, the reason I mention that is because Paul's kind of in a similar situation, right? He's kind of in a forced pause. <laughs> He's never really had that, if you really look at his life. I mean, he had it for three years, perhaps, at the very beginning of his ministry. And then since then, for like the last 15 years, it's just been crazy. And so in some ways, it's a little bit of a forced rest for him. Not that he's not doing anything. He's clearly doing a lot. He's preaching to every guard that's chained to him for 12-hour shifts or five-hour shifts or whatever they are. But, but I do think you do have this sense a little bit that he's slowing down. And it's a good thing. It's a good slowing down. kind of works for him. Um, okay. So now that we've kind of talked about that, we've talked about Paul's context, and we've talked about what, what we can anticipate, some of the things that we expect to see. He'll talk about the gospel. He'll... He'll, he'll maybe deepen it. I gave you that one kind of as a freebie that you couldn't have guessed that, but there's going to be some, some things there that, that you won't see elsewhere or not until. Oh, the other thing is, I'll add to this, is from Paul's context, he's also more experienced. I mean, everything he's written, all the letters we've read have been inspired by God, but they've also been through him. And now he's got a couple decades of experience under his belt at planting churches and raising churches and helping churches know how to sort of structure themselves. So one thing you might expect and you should, because it's there, I'll just tell you. One thing you might expect is that the letters from here forward, not even just Ephesians, but some of the rest, but definitely Ephesians, he begins to talk a little bit more about some of the ways the church ought to function. Now, he's talked about the way as a community we should treat each other before now, but he hasn't really talked sort of about the specifics of, of, of the structure of a church and how things should function. And why does he do that now? Because he's had time to, to kind of learn how that works, to see what's good and see what's not good and find out where things worked and find out where things didn't. So you see some of that, some of that very practical experience and wisdom come through his letters. Not that it hasn't all been inspired, but again, God is working through who he is and what he knows. So you begin to see some of that. I think you also begin to see a very, I think you begin to see even more, far from the doubt, you begin to see more conviction. And again, even in his other letters, occasionally you would see that he was, there were things he was, like his relationship with the, um, with the Corinthians, you know, he's kind of concerned about it. You could see that, you know, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But, but a lot of that is kind of passing. He's reaching a certain level of maturity, which even in his inspired letters is a little different. It's a little calmer. Um, he's still passionate, but he's sort of, there's, there's a bottom line confidence to the things he's saying that hasn't always kind of been as clear. So I think we see some of that too. Now, second question I have is, um, I've told this story before. I'll tell it very, very quickly this time because I think you probably all heard it in one context or another, but um, there's just this story about a, uh, a yogi, a yoga master who wanted to learn more. So he travels overseas to meet with a sensei, a master in India. 
And he wants to learn everything he can. And they meet for a few weeks. And the sensei says, and they're both getting frustrated because it's just not working. And finally, the yogi, the sensei says to the yogi, he says, you know, would you just have tea with me tomorrow? Just put everything aside and just come have tea. He says, of course, of course. So he shows up at the master's house. And and when he gets in, walks in the door, he sees a table and he sees two cups and he sees a, a teapot. And the sensei is sitting on the at the table. So he walks in, he sits down at the other side of the table, and he notices that his cup has tea in it already, and the sensei's is empty. So the sensei says, would you, like, would you fill my cup, please? And the, the yogi says, absolutely. So he takes the pot and fills the, the sensei's cup and puts the, the, the teapot down and looks over at the sensei, and the sensei says, would you like me to fill your cup? And the yogi looks at his ca- cup, and he thinks this is awkward. You know, maybe he's going senile. I'm not sure what's happening here because there's already stuff in here. But there's a little room. It's not all the way up. So he thinks, okay, maybe he just wants to top it off. So he says, sure, that'd be fine. So the sensei picks up the teapot, and he starts filling the cup, and it fills, and it fills, and it gets to the top, and it starts spilling over the edge of the cup, and it starts running over the table, and it starts coming down into the lap of the yogi. And he jumps up, and he says, sensei, what are you doing? He says, you're, 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 you need to stop. And the sensei says, I thought you wanted me to fill my cup. And he says, yes, but you have to let me empty it first. And the sensei says, I wish you would. He says, for two weeks I've been trying to teach you something. But your cup is so full that everything I try to teach you just spills right out. He says, you've got to empty your cup. You've got to be willing to learn. And so I think when it comes to Scripture, there's a lot of this. Especially in America, we have so many systems and theologies and conceptions and teachings that we've heard and we've experienced. Sometimes we come to Scripture and our cup is so full that God wants to fill our cup. And he's like, I just need you to empty this a little bit first, okay? If you want me to fill it, you got to empty it. Get rid of some of this. And I don't say that because I want you to trust that. I don't, I'm not saying to you, get rid of your ideas and trust mine. That's not, that's not where I'm going either. Um, but, but as we look at Ephesians together, I think there's a degree to which we're going to have to all empty our cup a little bit because he gets into such depth and he gets into such things that very smart people and very spiritual people over the years have created systems and theologies around these ideas, that it becomes easy that you see catchwords and you immediately go to that system instead of letting the Scripture speak for itself. Does that make sense? Um, I'm, uh, yeah, so this is my second question. Uh, what fills our cup maybe unhelpfully? I just, just, let's chat a little bit, and even for you guys personally. You know, what are some of the fears that you have? Now, you don't know, maybe where we're going to in Ephesians, or maybe you do. If, you have, if you've read Ephesians, you're familiar with it, you're welcome to use that in answering this question. And if you haven't, you're welcome to just guess. But the question is, what are things that, that you bring when you read Scripture, and particularly Ephesians, that you suspect potentially might get in the way? What, what systems and understandings of theology do you bring that maybe not help? And what fears do you bring? Because a lot of times it's our fears, our concerns about what God Maybe God isn't as good as we hope or whatever. So I'm interested. I know it's kind of a tough question, particularly since we haven't looked at Ephesians yet, but I'm interested if you guys have any thoughts on that. Just thinking ahead a little bit, what are, what are some things in your mind that you might need to empty? you have any ideas? Oh. Yeah, good, good question. So what about that? Oh, it's interesting. See, that's an example of you come to Ephesians and that's already, that's already in the cup. You haven't even read it yet. You haven't let Paul say it yet, in a sense. You're just like, what does this mean? Well, how does that strike you? Does that make you, how does that make you feel when you come to Ephesians, knowing that that's in there? Dick, are you not making her submit enough? Is that what's happening here? 
I think that's an excellent example. So, so there has to be a, a degree of willingness on your part to say, rather than coming at it in defense or, I mean, you'll have that conflict and that's fine. But rather than coming at it prepared to argue with it or prepared to throw away everything you're concerned about and just embrace it, to try to come to it and say, what is Paul saying? Just, just let him speak for himself. You know, because the reason that's such a good example is there are 90 million ideas out there and books and teachings and commentaries about what that means, aren't there? It's so hard to come to that with an empty cup. So it's a great example. What else? Sure. So the Holy Spirit is far from a neutral term in our culture, right? And particularly in church culture, right? It's not a neutral term. It immediately raises defense or, I mean, there's like, like sides are already being drawn. You know, what does it mean? I'll tell you the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul uses the word power perhaps more than any other word. It is a question. What does he mean? But if we come already with preconceived notions of what power is and we're not willing, willing to let God speak to us about that, that would be a great example as well. Yeah. And you're right. Generally, I don't know if Ephesians so much hits on the Holy Spirit, although it does. Actually, we'll see it a lot. But just that, like you say, in any scripture, that's not something we're neutral about. We come with our systems for that. So how can we let God... Speak to us about that. How can we empty that? Good. What else? These are great examples. I, guess you're doing, I wasn't sure if anybody had any thoughts. This is great. What else? <laughs> I'll give you one off the bat, and I'll use two words I never use for the very reason that we're talking about, because they immediately fill people's cup. And I'll use them once, and I won't use them again as we go through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians talks a lot about what people call Calvinism versus Arminianism. It talks about predestination versus free will. We're the ones, though, who put that verses in the middle predestination versus free will. Paul never pits them against each other at all. So that's an interesting question. I only bring it up because it's impossible to read the first chapter of Ephesians without going, wait, wait, how much it was. You know, I know somebody believes this and I know somebody believes this. That's great. That's great. They may be right. They may be wrong. That's an example though. When you, when we start reading about, and he uses phrases like predestination, I want us as much as we can to lay aside the systems we've learned that explain that. Because part of what those systems do is they remove tension. And sometimes Paul doesn't want to remove tension. Sometimes Paul likes the tension. Sometimes Paul is like, this is great tension. Let this tension be because there's mysteries in this tension. <laughs> sometimes we move them away. Um, so, again, uh, we'll just kind of let Paul say what he says. And, and, and I will try not to force conclusions upon you, although I'll tell you my understandings as we go. But I, I definitely want you to kind of empty your cup. Whatever your position is on that, you know, whatever you believe about that, let's let Paul speak and see what he says. And maybe you'll end up being exactly right. And if you are, that's great. And maybe your mind will be changed, and that's okay too. Um, and maybe, maybe you don't have a position, and when we're done, you still won't have a position. And that's okay too. But that's another system that has become a system of such strength for people that it becomes the... Um, it just becomes everything. Every scripture is read through that veil or through that lens. So we're just going to try to lay the lenses aside and just let it be what it is. Any other examples? Any other thoughts? I do. 
That's right. That's right. That's cool. I mean, I think you'll be okay because being your favorite book of the Bible, you approach it with anticipation anyway. And you're expecting God to kind of show you new stuff. But you're right. That's a good point. Sometimes over-familiarity is part of that cup, right? It's part of what fills the cup. Great example of that. It's so funny. I've been a pastor for umpteen years, and I still, it's just amazing. And, and in fact, as a pastor, I frequently talk about, read the scripture. Don't bring these things to it. This is like a theme I often talk about because it's important to me. And yeah, I was reminded a few years back how easy it is to do. Um, and, and as a teacher, you're reminded all the time because you say stuff and people come up later and they're like, that's not true. You're like, yeah, it is. It's right. Hmm. Guess it's not true. You know, you're just like, how did I think that? Great example. It's so funny. It's so nothing. This is like, this example, it doesn't hurt anything. It didn't change my theology, but it made me laugh. And it was just God's way of saying, be humble and empty your cup. Because I was, I was teaching on Paul and the road to Damascus in the book of Acts. And I was talking about how he's, you know, he's, he's on the way to Damascus. And the, the light comes and the voice comes. And I said he fell off his horse. I don't know why I said that, but in my head, Paul was riding a horse. He's actually not riding a horse in the scripture. He's just walking. There's no indication anywhere that he's riding on a horse. When I read the text, I actually read it out loud to them as I do, and then talked about him falling off the horse. Nowhere in the text does it say he was on a horse, but as I read it, I filled that in, but it wasn't there. I figured out later, and I kid you not, I think that's from a flannel graph. That's how old I am. I think that's from a flannel graph in Sunday school. I'm, I'm not joking. That I was a, When I was in Sunday school, there was a flannel graph of Paul on a horse, and they made him fall off the horse, right? That was like part of the thing. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And again, it's nothing. It doesn't change anything. It's not a big deal. But it just reminded me, because it was one of the congregational members who came up later and said, I got a bone to pick with you. And I said, what? And they said, every preacher I hear, and apparently it's, it's like a generational thing, because they said, every preacher I hear talks about Paul on his horse. And they said, you show me in the text where, it's, where he's on his horse. And it literally was that moment. I went, oh, yeah, it's right here. It's got to be here. Where is it? It's not here. And they were like, I know. <laughs> and they told me, they said, you read it, and you didn't read a horse. And then you talked about the horse. <laughs> I was like, that is so crazy. It's just so easy. We come with, and again, not a big deal. You know, I don't think God was mad, and it didn't affect the teaching. But, but it is weird, isn't it, that we can just bring these things, and, and, and suddenly we have this, this mentality about it. We have this, this concept that's there. And sometimes it becomes bigger things. You know, people learn that there are three wise men. Well, there aren't three wise men. You know, the, the wise men were kings. Well, they probably weren't kings. You know, it's just there's things that we learn or, or even that it was, a, it was a stable. It probably wasn't a stable. It was probably a cave. But, you know, there's, there's all these things that we just kind of learn. And we learn them all sorts of ways. You know, I know. I just know it. There's a whole generation of people just a, not too much younger than me, but a little bit younger than me, whose end times theology has a lot more to do with the Left Behind series than it does with Scripture, which doesn't mean that's bad. It's not that the Left Behind series was bad, but being a fictional story, they put a lot of things in there that aren't in Scripture. <laughs> and there's a lot of people I've heard. I, I've heard them, people who grew up. My, my daughter raised her hand back there when I said that. People who grew up reading those books have ideas in their head that they think are scriptural, but they're not. It's not where they come from. So 
Um, so that's, that's why it's important. And one of the things I want to say is no terms without meaning. And what I mean by that is things like Calvinism, Arminianism. If, you, if we, as we're discussing Ephesians over the next several weeks, and it's not like you guys actually do this a lot, but if, if, if you are going to say something that's a term, you know, if you're going to say this is such and such theology, you can't use that unless you can define what you mean. All right? You're not allowed to just throw out a school of thought. <clears throat> you need to tell me what you mean. Does that make sense? And you've got to show me in the text why you said that, not just because somebody else gave you that system. And again, you guys aren't a group that does that a lot, but I just, I just think it's kind of a good standard for us at this point. There's appropriate places for, for terms and schools of thought and for using them as shorthand. But as we're just going through the scripture and letting Paul speak, this is not one of those places. We're just going to let it be what it is. So I may, even in little ways, I may challenge you. You know, if you bring up a, a term, I may say, well, what does, that, what does that mean to you? You know, what do you mean by that? What, what are you saying? What is that? Where does Paul say it? Because Paul wasn't a Calvinist. You know how I know that? Because Calvin hadn't been born yet. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. Paul did not worry about the, the seven key points of Calvinism. You know, it was, I mean, if he did, it was because they're Paul points and not Calvin's points. So he wasn't thinking about that. But he wasn't, he's not an Arminian either because that also didn't exist. You know, he didn't have these systematic theologies. And, and if he did, then we'll let him reveal them to us whatever his system was. On the other hand, I don't know that he saw it as a system as much as he just saw it as, here's what I understand. Here's what God's revealed to me. Here's what, here's what I see. And he didn't always find it necessary, frankly, to make sure everything fit into a nice box. I think it did, in a sense, because he's a logical guy. I don't, I'm not saying that he was contradictory, but I'm saying he wasn't concerned about the bow. He was just concerned about the truth. So, Fair enough. There's probably a lot more discussion about that than we needed, but I think it's an interesting discussion for Scripture in general. I think it's really important to let Scripture speak for itself. So. <laughs> um, no, Armenia refers to, I think, I'm not even sure. It's a good question. Armenia refers to a group of people, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wes, yes, yes. Wesley is, now, I come way back when from the Methodist Church, so I should be an Armenian. Um, what's that? And I should know who Wesley is. I do. Uh, in fact, yes, Charles and John both, we, the Wesley brothers. Uh, we, we acknowledge both of them. Thank you. Not just one. And we sing all their hymns, but only the first, third, and fifth verse. Um, because apparently the second and fourth weren't spiritual. I don't really understand that, actually, but that's what we always did. Um, yeah. Okay. Of four thousand tongues to sing. I, to this day, don't know what the second verse of, but I know the first and the third verse of that particular hymn. Huh? Anyway, enough of that. Uh, Wesley and Calvin were both godly men who believed fervently in sharing the gospel and evangelizing, and they both saw lots of fruit. Um, you know, and yet they had some significant disagreements. <laughs> so what, what do we do with that? We accept that they were both people of God. We accept that they both were speaking truth. And we try to let Paul speak for himself. And understand that as Paul speaks for himself, he is canonized by God as speaking for God. So that's, that's fairly relevant <laughs> as well. Okay, all right. And by the way, both, both Calvin and Wesley would say they were speaking Pauline truth. I'm not saying they didn't think they were. So that's an interesting question. All right, so here we go. Maybe. Oh, I don't have any other slides. We're just going to talk through this. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So one of the things 
that we do see, we, we talked about indirectly uh, as, a, as something we'd anticipate seeing, is already apparent. And that's that Paul spends very little time defining himself. Think about some of the other letters where he talks about what it means to be an apostle and why he's an apostle and whose authority gave him this apostleship and, and, and how many, you know, some of them are like a resume. Some of the letters he says, Paul, who blah, 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 well, why doesn't he have to do that with the Ephesians? Because they know who he is, <laughs> right? I mean, they're very comfortable with who Paul is. So he's very brief on this. He just says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's maybe the shortest shortest hello uh, that he's got. Now, there's more hello, but I mean the shortest defining of himself in any of the letters. I'm not sure, but it's definitely up there. Then he says, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. There is a, um, you'll notice some commentators also point out that, that in some manuscripts, there's actually a blank there. It's like a fill in the blank where it says to the saints in Ephesus. And they speculate that this was not intended to be only a letter to the Ephesian church, but that it was what we call a circular letter and it was to be sent to whoever. I think, though, as you read this, there are some things that seem very clearly related to the Ephesian church. So it may be that it was also used because, as we use it today, even though we're not in Ephesus, <laughs> it may very well be that it was circulated as a circular letter. Um, and the earliest manuscripts don't have the blank. Some of the later ones do. So is it possible that they sort of made it a fill-in-the-blank? <laughs> That's possible. I think that makes sense. Um, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, besides which... After Ephesians, he writes Colossians. There's a lot of similarity between the two. If he was writing a circular letter, he would have just used the same one for both. But it seems like he was specific to each of them, even though he had, he had a word processor, he could have cut and pasted some of this. <laughs> right? Uh, but he didn't, because he apparently wanted to be very specific and personal about it. All right. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Right off the bat, he kind of lays out this just huge statement. And he says, he says let's, first he starts by saying, praise be to God. We're going we're gonna to glorify God. Let's praise God. Uh, let's bless God, in a sense. And why does he say we're going to bless God? Because he's blessed us. So, but what has he blessed us with? Every spiritual blessing. What in the world does that even mean? Who knows? But we can all agree that's a huge statement, right? I mean, that's really big. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a, a phenomenal thing to say. And he says, blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we understand, and the Ephesians understand, right? Are they, are they all prosperous? No. Right? Are they, are they without persecution? No. In fact, where is Paul as he writes this? <laughs> yes. Has he been blessed in the earthly realms with all physical blessings? No. But I don't think he's using heavenly realms and spiritual blessings as a way of diminishing. I think to him, that's the far more important blessing. Does that make sense? He's not saying, yeah, God could have blessed us here, but at least he blessed us with... He's not saying that at all. He's saying, here I am in prison, and it is awesome because I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. And when, I'm, when I see, when I actually have no veil over my eyes and I stand in those heavenly realms, I will see all those blessings. He does give us some sense of this, although he doesn't define what every spiritual blessing means, and I'm not sure he knows, <laughs> right? I guess he doesn't know. 
And, but he gives us a sense as he goes on. But I want you to see he starts right out of the gate with a big statement. It's like, we are blessed. Praise God because we're blessed. Not for me, right? Yeah, that us is Paul. That's good. And, and I think you're right on track because his next several statements are trying to uh, clear up any of that confusion. In fact, he's about to tell them how important they are and how holy they are. And he's about to make sure they realize that. And he says it in some really significant ways. So again, as we move through these next verses... These are encouragements. These are meant to be freeing and encouraging and uplifting and inspirational. And if as you read them, they strike you differently than that, I would at least suggest to you that it's because of what you're bringing to it. Occasionally people read this and they feel burdened. And I just don't think there's anything in here that is intended to burden. (laughs) Okay? It's because of what we bring to it. All right? So, Let's just read what he says. Because again, if you're, if you're in that mindset, and I love the way you segued that, because he does. He starts by talking about we are all blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And then he says, because. He says, for. But essentially he means because. This is why we've been blessed. This is why he has given us everything. Everything. And he, is, oh, he says some amazing things about what everything means. So he says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This is an amazing statement. And again, Let's not worry about what this does to free will because Paul didn't say anything in the sentence that says you don't have free will. He didn't say you do have free will. Let's just leave that aside for a moment because I don't care because it's not Paul's point right now. His point right now is how awesome is it? How awesome is it? And, and again, don't worry at the moment about what it means for anyone else. It's not, again, his point is to encourage us, to encourage you, to encourage the Ephesians, to encourage the saints and the faithful. How awesome is it that God looked at you before the world was even created? Before it was even created. And he chose you not only to be able to get into heaven, not just to sort of slide through, not just to offer you forgiveness, but to be holy and blameless. That he looked and he said, yes, I'm going to make you holy and blameless. And I'm going to make you holy and blameless. And he chose that before the fall, before the creation. From the very beginning. And he said, I'm going to do it in me, through me. He chose us in him. All right? Just, just take that as it is. All the questions about all the other ramifications, Paul will deal with later. But for now, just be encouraged by that. Just recognize that God chose you for that. Here's one of the reasons that's encouraging. When you are questioning whether you deserve that, what does this statement do to that question? It erases it. Because you didn't deserve anything before you were born, before you were created. There's, no, there's not a question of you earning it at all, is there? If you were chosen before, that just erases that question. What about when you're wondering if you've lost it, right? When you're kind of saying, maybe I can no longer, maybe I'm not holy and blameless anymore. <laughs> well, who, who made it so? Was it anything you did? Was it anything you chose? According to this statement, he chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. That's cool. There's time to deal with questions, and and it's okay to have questions. You know I believe that too, but there's time to deal with those later. For now, let's revel. That's what Paul wants us to do. (laughs) 
revel in this knowledge. He says, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, in love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. He, he looked and He said, I'm going to adopt them to be part of my family. We were talking about Endale, and I have my own two adopted kids. And one thing I know about all three of those kids, my two and Matt's one, is that they didn't choose to be adopted. Right? None of them chose that. We chose them. And that's, that's why adoption is a good picture. That's why it makes sense. Because he looked before the creation of the world and he said, their destiny is to be my children. Their destiny is to be in my family. That's cool. That's awesome. It's as cool as it is, you know, when we see Andale come home and we realize how, what a blessing it is for him to be in this family. Are there questions about, you know, what about the other kids that they didn't choose? You can go there if you want. And maybe someday we can. But right now, it's just a blessing for Andale. It's just awesome. He was chosen. It's a great thing. And Paul is saying, we are those kids. We did a little um, at the services uh, on Sunday. I got to teach because Matt was, had had a 36-hour trip, so he still let me teach. And um, we did a little Thanksgiving scattershot prayer at the end, just let people say thanks. And when my kids, were, when my family was here, I don't know if anybody could even hear my daughter um, because she was really quiet. But she just, of her own accord, and it's one of those things, you know, warms your heart. Um, she just said, you know, she prayed and she said, thank you, God. Um, that I was adopted into, the, into this family, that I was adopted into. And that's, that's kind of the sense. That's the feeling. It's the just thank you. Praise God. We're part of God's family. Amen. That's awesome. And that's what Paul's saying. So here he is. He's writing the Ephesians. And this is where he's starting. He's starting with these big sort of identity issues, these big moments. He's not building up to them. <laughs> he's just like, here we are. And I think part of the reason is because he knows, in a sense, they're, they're, they're at a place that this, they can understand this. They can take this. He can talk about these big mind-blowing things like being chosen before the creation of the world and, and they're going to be, they're just, they're, they understand the gospel so it's not going to confuse them. They understand this in the context of the gospel. Like, okay, we get it. Um, in love, in love, and it's important. This is, there's, I guess I'll hold that thought for later. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Why did he do it? Because <laughs> he had pleased him. Because it was his choice, because he wanted to. That's cool. Not because we coaxed him, not because we convinced him, not because we, you know, wooed him. He just, it was his pleasure and his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given us in the one he loves. I think there's a really important statement here, and I actually posted it on Facebook yesterday. Those of you who are on my page may have already seen it. I think Don actually liked it already. There's, a, there's an important point here. He says, he says he did this according to his, in love, according to his pleasure and his will. So he just wanted to do it. But the fact that he did it because he loves us and for his own pleasure, it says, is to the praise of his glorious grace, that his grace is full of glory. We've talked about this a lot. I think there's something about God that's so important for us to understand. I've, I've found myself in the past, not recently, but I found myself in the past engaged in arguments that I don't even understand about where, where people are very fervent about if you ask the question, why did God save us? Sometimes people will say he did it for his glory. And some people will say he did it because he loved us. And I, yes, is what I say. But, but what happens is they, they argue about it. 
They're like, if you say that he did it because he loved us, then you're taking away his glory. And if you say he did it for his glory, then you're taking away his, his love for us. Paul has no problem melding these right together. And his whole point is that what is glorious about God, one of the things that is most glorious about who he is, the thing that really brings him praise, this whole thing is about praise God for these things. One of the things that really brings him praise is that precisely he's the kind of God who delights, who takes pleasure in loving people who don't deserve to be loved. That's what's glorious about him. And we've talked about this before, and we're going to see this unfold even more again, and this is what I want to remind you, is that when we see the gospel, this is about glorifying God, but it's about glorifying God by having the whole universe, all the angels and the spiritual forces and the world, see what that kind of love looks like. It's about seeing that the depth of God's love is unbelievable. It's incredible. There's that amazing passage which says that the angels look at the redemption of mankind and marvel. Of all the things they could marvel at, they hang out with God all the time, right? Of all the things the angels could marvel at, they sit around him singing, holy, 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 right? They understand how perfect and other and great and holy he is. And of all the things they could marvel about his gloriousness, the thing it specifically mentions that they just can't get over, the thing that they wonder about all the time, the thing that astounds them and amazes them is the redemption of us, that God would love us and redeem us, that he has the power and the love to do that is what brings him glory. That's why this whole beginning of this chapter is praise be to God because of this, because he's this kind of God, because he's bringing the whole world to redemption like we talked about in Romans 8. That's a theme he's going to get back to here in Ephesians. He's bringing the whole world under the headship of Christ. And he's doing it because it's his pleasure to do so, because he loves us. And that's to his glory. And the amazing part about all this plan is that it was a plan. It didn't just sort of come to him at a moment. It wasn't like the world fell, and then he went, now, what am I going to do? It's like his knowledge. People say, why did he create the world knowing that Adam was going to fall, knowing that Jesus would have to die on the cross? And the answer is, that's why he created the world. That's what's amazing about this, is looking ahead, making the plan. He said, I know, I know, they're going to fall. They're going to be sinful. Look at the glorious opportunity I have to redeem them, even if it costs my life. Not even if, even though it costs my life. Look at the glorious opportunity. It's not like Jesus and the Father had this long discussion. Are we going to do this? Should we do this? Is it a good thing? No, this was the plan from the beginning, right? That's what's cool about it. Before we were born, before it was created, before the fall, God knew the fall would happen. He knew that it would lead to this glorious moment of redemption and then ultimately to the redemption of the whole universe. And for him, it's more glorious. It gives more glory and it demonstrates his love better to to allow the world to be fallen and then be redeemed to a glorious place than it would if he had simply created a world that could not fall which is some of the questions, why did, he, why did he make it possible for us to fall? There's free will questions there too, but I think the bottom line is that's part of the glory. That's part of the glory is that he allowed a world to fall and was able to redeem it and desired to redeem it. He allowed people to, to reject him and then loved them. That whole Hosea picture where Hosea was called to go back and woo his wife who had left him and did not love him and did not want him. 
<laughs> God's like, go get her back. And Hosea's like, she doesn't even like me. And God's like, I don't care. Go get her back. That's a glorious picture, right? Because it shows what an amazing husband Hosea was. It shows what an amazing God God is. That's what you see dripping here. So we've kind of said that. Let me just read from the top and read to where we are so you can, now you can feel the richness of all these phrases. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It's awesome. And then he begins to describe what the grace involves, what some of the blessings are. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We are purchased, we're bought. Redemption is a word that that we would use the same thing. You redeem something. Um, in, in the economy, right, you, you have a redemption ticket or you can redeem something that you've given or sold or, or, or uh, put in a pawn shop, right? That's how you do it. Put it in the pawn shop and then you redeem it with the ticket. You buy it back. And that's what redemption is. It's a purchase. It's, a, it's having to pay a price to get something back. And it was the death of Jesus that was that price. That's part of the glory. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, All our sins are as far from us as the east is from the west. They are forgiven. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He knocks down lots of our doubts and arguments about the gospel right here in this this sentence. Just think about, again, the, the, the fears that we encounter in what he says here. The redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of his sins are in accordance with what? They come out of what? Not just God's grace, but what? The wealth of it, the riches of it. It's, it's kind of like if, um, if you need money, if, if you need to pay your mortgage this month, that's a lot of money for us. For all of us in this room, it's probably a lot of money, right? It's, that's a lot. Some days it's too much. <laughs> Some months it's really tough. And so, it's, 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 so you have to pay your mortgage. But what if then someone came to you and said, you know what, Bill Gates has opened up his account to pay your mortgage. Your question would not be, I wonder if there's enough, right? Or, or Tim Cook, whoever, pick your, pick your famous rich tech guy. <laughs> I don't know why I went for Bill Gates, what's wrong with me? Um, but no, pick your, pick your famous rich guy, right? What's that? Warren Buffett. We'll just avoid the tech people altogether. So Warren Buffett was offering a billion dollars to anyone. Of course, he knew no one would get it. But he was offering a billion dollars to anyone who could predict the entire uh, bracket, right? Which no one got, and he knew that. But he could do it. Your mortgage, out of the riches of Bill Gates, it's enough. Sometimes, in so many ways, we wonder, is what Jesus did at the cross, is it enough? Is it really enough? Does it really cover everything? Does it cover all my issues? Does it cover all my sin? Does it cover all my quirkiness? Does it cover all my frailty? Do I need to do something else? Well, it's as silly a question, right, as saying, does Bill Gates have enough to pay my mortgage? It's, it's even sillier. It's infinitely sillier, actually, right, because the difference is infinite. But, but you see the point. That's what he's saying. It's out of the riches of God's grace. It's not, there's no sacrifice. There's no problem here. God's grace is infinitely rich. And out of that infinite reservoir of wealth, you have redemption. Of course it's enough. 
and to say it's not is, is it would be, it's like if Bill Gates came to you and said, I'd like to pay your mortgage. He would be insulted if you said, I don't know, can you afford that? You know, he'd probably be like, okay, never mind, you know, because he's not God. He'd probably, well, that's fine. Never mind. You're right. Too much for me. You know, he'd be insulted. God isn't, you know, petty, so he doesn't get insulted in that sense. But it is an insult to say to him, it's not enough, the death of, of the king of the universe, right, on the cross. I think that's enough. He's making that point. But he goes on and he says that he lavished on us. So it's like he's even going further. It's like Bill Gates. It's, not, it's, it's like Bill Gates. You say, you know, well, I don't know if you can afford it. And Bill Gates is like, no, I can not only afford it, but I'm going to pay your mortgage for the rest of your life. I'm going to lavish my wealth. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, in fact, you know what? In fact, just take the account. It's yours. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lavishing. It's, it's not even just out of the riches. It's not like he's giving it stingily. It's like he's showering you with it. That's why we have every spiritual blessing. That's part of that, that every spiritual blessing is the wealth of it. But I love the next part too. Does he do this because he's confused or mistaken or foolish or wrongheaded or deceived by what Jesus did at the cross or Jesus convinced him that the Father should do this? Is it any of those things? What does it say? It says with what? With all wisdom and understanding, with all wisdom and insight. In other words, God knew what he was doing when he did this. And sometimes we say, hey, well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> we say, God, why did you do this? We say, I don't, God, I don't think you knew what I was going to do. You know, I don't think you knew how bad I was going to be. And again, God looks at you and he's like, trust me, I knew. You know, I knew before the creation of the world. I know even, I know even more than you know. You, know you, you have no idea. If you, see what I, if you saw what I could see, you'd just die. You know, <laughs> just don't even go there. With all wisdom and understanding. God was right to do it. It was smart to do it. It's a perfect plan. It's an amazing plan, but it's an unbelievably large plan. It's just so far removed from the, the concepts of the how-tos, you know, when we share the gospel with someone and we worry about, and, and we have to, because you have to articulate it somehow, but I just want you to see the difference. The gospel isn't just the things we say. It's not the Roman road. It's not the four spiritual laws. It's not the bridge diagram. That's my favorite. I love the bridge diagram, but it's not that. Those are just ways we articulate. We try to explain. These are the ways Paul's explaining the gospel. It's huge. And even this is just an articulation of such an amazing mystery and, and depth that it just drips off the page with, with amazing richness. But even that is too small. And when we confuse the words we share with what the gospel actually is, we do a disservice. You know? And then we get hung up on the words and how we share them. And God's like, just, just, don't worry about the words. <laughs> you know, say something. <laughs> and, but, but this is too big for words in a sense. I'll work with what you got. Jesus shared the gospel in the most bizarre ways. I mean, the ways he shared the gospel are not good examples. Really. I mean, today you shall be in paradise with Jesus. Okay, that was good. Let's go to the next guy. Sell all your possessions to the poor. Awesome. Okay, let's go over here. You, be reborn. Okay, good. Now, let's, you know, I mean, it's like... Really? What, what's the pattern there? <laughs> the pattern is here. It's just that the words are going to be dependent upon the person and the time and the context and the content. But you've got to grasp the depth or you won't even get close. And so he says that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, 
to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There's an interesting thing, by the way, about this, this whole paragraph that I just read to you and the next three verses. You know what is interesting about this in the Greek? It's all one sentence. We're stopping because I want to just kind of emphasize things, but it's kind of like Paul wanted them to just read it, right? And that we're going to go back and do that again in a second. But it's kind of like he didn't want to stop. He didn't give them a place to pause. It's like Paul got going and he's like, I'm not going to breathe until I finish this thought. You know, and it's one long sentence. It's just one long modified sentence about how great God is and how we ought to be praised. It's kind of amazing. And it sets the tone for the entire letter, right? It's almost like when you go to see a show and they play that overture. Any of you ever go to live theater? I love live theater. But they play that overture at the beginning. It sets the tone for the whole show, right? You can kind of tell what kind of show it's going to be. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's like got this incredible, poetic, mature, experienced, profound sentence. <laughs> and he's like, this is where we're going. And so the Ephesians are like, wow, okay, hang on, let's go. <laughs> you know. But so this one we, we did, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Uh, we'll, we'll hold that for a second because there's modifiers after that. So that's a, big, that's a good question. What's the mystery of his will? But then he says, according to his good pleasure. So again, why did he make known to us the mystery of his will? Because he wanted to. Because it pleased him to. Think of the word pleasure. It's not even just like, hey, I wanted to do it. It's like it pleased him to do it. It was fun for him to do it. I, I totally get this when he talks about God the Father being this way. Because as a father, that's what I love. I love doing things that bless my kids right? I hate it when I can't bless my kids, you know, when circumstance or time or money or whatever doesn't let me do what I want to do. But when I have the opportunity, it's so much fun. I think parents, again, when, when, when you can afford the bills or, or, or when you've lowered the kids' expectations so you can afford the bills, Christmas is very fun for parents, right? Because you love to give them stuff they like and you love that moment when they open the package and you just want them to see them, their eyes light up. And when that happens and it works that way, you're like, yes. And why do you do that? Because you want them to love you more? Not a, not a chance. <laughs> that doesn't usually make them love you more because you know, a week later they don't like what you got them anyway. But, but you do it because you want to. Because it pleases you. It gives you pleasure to bring them joy like that. That's our God. That's awesome. That's awesome. We want to please God. You know what pleases God? Your holiness, your blamelessness, your spiritual blessings, all these things he's given you. Not you making them happen but him doing it for you. That's what pleases God. It's amazing. It's amazing. And giving us the mystery of his will, which we're talking about in a second. This mystery of his will, whatever it is, was because he wanted to, and it's something he purposed in Christ. Again, it's that idea of planned. It's that idea of this didn't happen, didn't just happen. It wasn't kind of an arbitrary thing. It, this was a plan from before the beginning, from before the creation. He purposed it in Christ. This was the plan. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. And I think here he's giving us the, he's, he's again, he's carried away in this moment. And he's speaking a long sentence. And I think at this moment he's not concerned about whether he's in the present or the future. It's all together. And I think there's hints of what he says that are true now because of the gospel. And there's there's fulfillment of what he says that's true in the future because of the gospel. And I think he's merging them all together at this moment. 
In other words, he says, when the times uh, well, have reached their fulfillment, on one hand, he's saying now, times have reached their fulfillment because the Lord has come, the Messiah has come, the gospel has come, we have been redeemed. In one sense, he's saying, this is the moment. In another sense, he's going back to that Romans 8 idea. He's saying that there is a time coming when everything will be redeemed. The whole universe waits and anticipates that moment when all things, as he goes on to say, will be brought all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And that even Christ just means namely Christ, meaning Christ. It doesn't mean it's even Christ. <laughs> it's a, it's, even's a weird word for us, but he just means Christ. It's just an answer. So he is talking about this great, so what is the mystery of his will? All things being brought together under one head, right? The, the headship of Christ. That the mystery of his will from the beginning, from before the creation of the world, was that all things would be brought together and redeemed under the headship of Christ. Or made right. Uh, I, I don't want to, uh, again, get into other systems that I don't agree with. I don't want to sound like I'm saying that. There, there's a sense of being brought under headship, being made right. There, there will be judgment. Paul's clear about that. But that's being made right too. That's also people, whoever, wherever that is. But for us, it's part of just being under that. Under that in a great way. Being under the Father's pleasure and getting to see that, that come into play. So it's a beautiful, beautiful sentence, beautiful statement. The next verse, I'm not sure. There's a couple questions I have and I'll just throw them at you. But again, the, the tone is the same. The flow is perfect. He says, In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will. That portion of the sentence is, is, a, is a repeat. It's a glorious redundancy. In some ways, he's not saying anything new, although in one way he is. But in other ways, he isn't. He's saying, look, we were chosen predestined before the beginning of time. And how? According to the plan. Again, there's a plan. And the plan is made by him who works out everything in the conformity of his will. So in other words, it's a plan by someone who can make the plan happen. <laughs> right? And everything is going towards that. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing for us to know. The world seems completely out of control, doesn't it? I mean, it just seems so. Because of the fall, there are terrible things that happen. I get it. But isn't it great to know that the God who had a plan before the creation of the world works everything out in the conformity of that plan? That as much as it seems crazy and chaotic, there's no chaos. There is no chaos, really. It's not to say that God is tickled with everything that happens because it's part of that whole fallen world and that whole allowing people to reject him that happens. But it does say that everything works out in the conformity of that plan and it will be completed. And we don't have to stress about that. That's going to happen. And that's a good thing. Again, Romans 8, he said the same thing, but he said it specifically about us. God works everything in our lives towards that plan, which is nice because sometimes our lives feel chaotic. <laughs> so that's good to know too. Very cool. But he goes on to say, we were also chosen. Then he had all those modifiers, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I thought about diagramming these sentences because they're crazy diagrammable sentences in terms of all the modifiers, but I decided that's something I like and you wouldn't. So we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> Don says thank you. <laughs> so, but if you skip all those modifiers... He says, in him we also were chosen in order. So that, again, I just want you to not lose the, the thread of that sentence. And that's where the, gra the, 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 uh, the diagramming might have helped because we could have pushed those aside, but I'll just tell you. In, in him we were also chosen in order. Why were we chosen? Because he said some other reasons we were chosen. Now he's mentioning another one. 
Him we were also chosen in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And now the question becomes, who is we at this point? And I'm not entirely sure. There's a couple of ways to read it. They may both come out to the same thing, as I was thinking through it. There's two sort of most logical explanations. They may actually end up at the same place. Before I explain that, though, I want to go on to show you that he does contrast we with you. So he is making a distinction here of some kind. He says, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So there is a distinction being made here, and the most obvious one is we as Paul and the apostles, and you as the Ephesians. That's a possibility. Saying that basically the apostles were the first. They were the first to hope in Christ. And as the first to hope in Christ, um, they are for the praise of his glory. They, they become, they pass it on, they become the first ones, they become kind of the, the angels looking to go, it's happening, the plan has started, you know, this is amazing, it's working, you know, it's kind of that kind of thing. And then the Ephesians would be those that they passed it on to that were included in this amazing glory, but that they were, they were the first. Um, and th- so that when he says, in him we, all, we were also chosen, that also may refer to we. Meaning, you were all chosen, we were all chosen, but we also were chosen to be first. And I don't think there's anything wrong with Paul being at this moment sort of carried away and thinking how awesome that is. It's not a boastful thing, because again, it's not saying we did it. <laughs> he's saying God chose And I could see him totally thinking, of all people that I got chosen to be in this first batch is unbelievable. You know? And in fact, he says things like that. He's like, I'm the least of all people. And I think it's because he's so amazed by what God has chosen for him that, he, that in comparison, he's the least. And so it could be that. It could just be that he's saying, man, and think about it. We were chosen to be first to the praise of his glory, and now you're part of it too? Oh, this is, just a, this is just all awesome. He's just like, everything is great. It's amazing. That's one possibility. The other is, and this fits with some of the context where he goes later. It also fits with the, 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 the topic about all things being brought under one head. Let's back up a second. We've been talking big terms, and they're all very big and very important, but let's bring back the context. Throughout Paul's ministry, What's been the most significant obstacle? You can name two or three. So if you don't, so we'll, we'll name, what are some of, one of them will be the one I'm looking for. What are some of the most significant obstacles or tensions or distractions that Paul has had to encounter over the course of his ministry? What, what would be some of those? That's true. Early on, for sure. Uh, people think, because remember, he was a villain at the beginning. So people not trusting him. Okay, what else? Good, you win the prize. Ding, 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 ding. Um, you also could have mentioned the persecution and people trying to kill him. Those also would have counted. <laughs> but I think that what you said is part of where I'm going. That throughout the course of his ministry, he, this, the big tension has been he's been preaching to Gentiles and the Jews are not getting it. They're like, why are you doing this? <laughs> I mean, not all, some of them are, some of them are. And, and this... This, this split, this schism, this, this essentially racial segregation has been a, a, an issue. And remember, Romans was a lot about that, bringing them together. So when he talks about bringing all things together under one head and the mystery of that, when he speaks to Jews, he's trying to help them understand the Jewish Messiah always, all the prophets, and we saw this in Romans, tries to help them understand all the prophets kept saying that the Jewish Messiah would be for all nations wouldn't just be for the Jews. They kept saying that, and you kept missing it, or we kept missing it, Paul would say. Honestly, he was with them, right? With them. He certainly was missing it for a while. But that's part of his point, is trying to help the Jews understand that. For the Gentiles, he's also trying to help them understand, you are part of this. 
You've always been part of this. You've been part of the plan from the beginning. This wasn't a, a side note. The Ephesians are mostly Gentiles. So the we and you here could be the Jews and the Gentiles. And that fits with what he said in Romans, that God came to the Jews first. Not because he didn't plan to go to the Gentiles as well, but it just happens to be the chronology. That's the way he chose to do it. And so he could be saying we, as Jews, were chosen to be the first. But you also, as Gentiles, are included in it. It could be a way of embracing them and pulling them in. Does that make sense? And I think that may be part of what he's saying here. And that fits with this whole idea of all things being under one head as well. That he's saying all nations, all nations are coming together under one head. That is Christ. I I think it's very easy for us to miss that the Jewish-Gentile divide is as significant as our own history, if not more significant even, our own history of the African-American and our I guess they don't, we're not calling them that anymore. Um, the, the, the black and the white divide. Okay? That, that, and, and I'm not minimizing that at all. That is hugely significant in our history. That is not a good moment. <laughs> right? I mean, from slavery to civil rights, all the big deal. Not, not to be minimized. But the Jewish-Gentile thing, we don't understand that it was the same kind of animosity. It was the same kind of difficulty. It was the same kind of bigotry. And now Paul is saying, can't be that way. Now, he would clearly say that about the, the fact that our churches are still awfully segregated. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think Paul would notice that. You know what the answer to that is? Oh, I was going to say, will you fix it then? <laughs> yeah, ask a question. Sure. I, 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 ding, 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 ding. I think you're completely right. I think, in fact, as we keep going, we're going to see that the mystery of his will is the gospel, but what he's really talking about in Ephesians is that bringing of the Jews and Gentiles together because that is a mystery to everybody, right? That is to the Jews and the Gentiles both. That's a mystery. How can that be? Sure, absolutely. It's a good example too. Yep, yep, absolutely. That, that That is part of the mystery. And what Paul's going to get into in chapter 3 and 4, is that the church is that mystery in, in the broad sense, that that is the body brought together as one and that it encompasses all nations and all peoples. Um, and remember, when we say Jews and Gentiles, that means everybody, <laughs> right? You're either Jew or you're Gentile. Those are the only two options. So that's another difference between the examples we've used. That, that means everybody. But I think that is, I agree with you, that's part of the mystery he's talking about for sure. He broadens it. He speaks of it in broad terms when he talks about everything being brought together under his head. But in Ephesians, he gets very practical and begins to speak very much about how this applies in the church itself. The church as a whole, still big, um, but also locally. That there should be this, that there is, not that there should be, that there is. Remember, we've talked about, Paul's talked about identity of the individual a lot, how we're new creations. He uses the exact same terminology in Ephesians about the church. It says the church has now become a new body and a new creation comprised of these two really divergent groups, Jews and Gentiles. It's fascinating. I'll throw in this little tidbit because we're about to wrap up. Um, it's fascinating when we do get to Colossians. He says a lot of the same things, but they take on a little bit different tint because in Colossae, they're struggling with a heresy, which is the idea of bringing Greek philosophy and merging it with Christianity. And so he's trying to show them how everything gets pulled together, but that some things don't belong there. (laughs) 
So it, it's the same message, but he has to add this sort of watch for heresy at the same time. And it becomes an interesting dance. It's a very effective one. I'm not saying he has trouble with it. He actually does it really well. But you can see it's a, there's a different picture there. With the Ephesians, this is like Romans. This is one of those letters where he doesn't have anything to correct, which is kind of fun. <laughs> He's not writing to say you're doing this wrong yet. He, the, the Ephesians have problems later, and he writes to Timothy about those. But right now, he's not correcting anything. He's just deepening their understanding, trying to give them a sense of what the church is. Um, so we're actually going to... Let me, let me see if I can finish this sentence at least, and then we'll, then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Before we go into the Holy Spirit, which I am going to touch on here in just a second, I will just briefly point out that, that at this moment, Paul introduces the other side of the tension. In other words, up until now, he's talked completely, and again, I think we need to read it that way when he talks that way, as God chose. But now he says, having believed. So now suddenly he's introducing, you not only heard, but you believed. So, so there is something here, <laughs> right? Had they not believed, they wouldn't be part of this whole discussion of having been chosen we get ourselves tangled up in knots trying to figure out which comes first and how those go together. The interesting thing is Paul doesn't care. He really doesn't care. He's just like, you were chosen. That's it, period. God's sovereignty is unblemished. And then he says, and you believed, and then you received that chosenness. And you're like, but how can those both be? And he says, well, they just are. I mean, that really is the way Paul deals with this argument. If you say to Paul, predestination or free will, he says, yes. That's what he says. We say, but Paul, how can that be? That doesn't that diminish God's sovereignty? He says, oh, you want to talk about God's sovereignty? Man, he is totally sovereign, completely in control. He chooses everything. You're like, well, that, doesn't that diminish free will? Oh, you want to talk about free will? You better choose to believe, and God has put the choice in front of you, and you need to make the choice now. But Paul, didn't you just say God is sovereign? Oh, yeah, God is completely sovereign. He, I mean, that's what he does. And to him, there's one of two options. Either he understands it in such a profound way that it doesn't even look like a contradiction to him, and I believe that's possible. Or he just accepts that certain tensions exist because God is God. And we're not going to be able to make them all line up. We already know this is true of God in other ways. Jesus being fully God and fully man, if you really start to unpack that, if you really start to think about what that means, you run into places where it's impossible. You just can't make that happen. (laughs) When Jesus was a baby, did he know everything or not? Well, no. But he was fully God at that time. So, yes. <laughs> but he clearly grew in wisdom, it says. So, no. I mean, it's just, again, you, you start to unpack that and you just start to go, you know, how does that work? It works because he's God. I mean, it does. And, and the Greeks did understand this on a level that sometimes we miss because we've heard it so often in Sunday school. The Greeks' biggest struggle with the gospel was the idea not of a God who walked the earth, they already had that in their Greek mythology, right? Happened all the time. Not even of a part God, part man. You ever hear of Hercules? Right? They had that in their Greek mythology all the time. Those weren't problems. Their problem was a completely transcendent God. The one overarching transcendent God, which they believed in, but didn't know how to describe. That's what Paul talks about in Athens with the unknown God. That, transcendent, by definition, means outside of everything. That transcendent God being able to fit is how the Greeks would have described it. Being able to fit inside a limited human body. To them, that didn't make any sense. That was their biggest struggle. That was what they wrestled with. And they were right to wrestle with it. 
<laughs> because it shows they really, they really accepted the transcendence and the humanity together. And that's where they kind of went, ah, how does that work? Right? The Jews' biggest struggle was seeing the Messiah as God. That was difficult because God should be one, and he is one. But how does that happen? <laughs> how does that work? So they both had their cups that they had to empty. But the thing is, they both recognized that tension for what it really was, and we try to diminish it. Same thing with predestination and free will. I'm not saying you, you can't ultimately, when you walk out of here, go with a system that makes sense to you. We all do that, and we all have to do that. But personally, the system that works best for me is to let the tension be. To say God is completely sovereign, and he chose all of us before the creation of the world. Paul says that really clearly. I don't know how you can argue against that. Then he says, because you heard the word and you believed, you received that. He says that really clearly too. I don't see how you can argue with that. Scripture says God desires all men to be saved, but not all men are saved. Scripture says why not? Because some choose not to be. Well, what does that do with God's sovereignty? I don't know. It doesn't diminish it. It can't. Nothing can diminish God's sovereignty. How does that work? I don't know. But I, I guess I would like to say like Paul because that means I'm right. So I will say it. Like Paul, um, I'm okay with the tension. That's how I see it. Now, Calvin would have said like Paul, you know, <laughs> there really is no tension. And Wesley would have said like Paul, there really is no tension. So we all, we all, we all think we're right. But that's, that's just my thought on that. Uh, really quick on the Holy Spirit, and then I'll let you go. And we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit next week. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. And I want you to notice he stops and ends this sentence with the praise of God's glory, and it's in the middle as well. Again, the whole point of this is that this whole plan, this whole amazing, incredible plan, is going to give God amazing glory. As it unfolds and as it all unfolds, and just think of that moment. C.S. Lewis captures this idea. His, trilogy, his science fiction trilogy is a little bit strange and some of the theology you could, you could argue with because it's not clear. But his final book of his science fiction trilogy, if you've never read it, he gives a picture of the praise of his glory when everything comes under the redemption, which is kind of amazing. It's, it's, it's inspired. It's, it's really awesome. The stars are dancing. It's just kind of a, an incredible thing. It's kind of like at the end of Narnia, you know, when they, they go deeper and further in. And you cut. He's really actually good at sort of the, the glory of the final culmination piece. He does that well. And in the science fiction trilogy, it's one of the most amazing things I've seen. It's stars singing. It's that, you can't even describe it. You have to read it because when I describe it, it just sounds stupid. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of this amazing piece of just the whole universe is just praising God in a phenomenal way. And... And that's what he's talking about. That's, that's what it is. It's going to all unfold and everybody's going to go, that is an incredible plan. And I think even when it says things like every knee will bow and every tongue confess, I think even those people in judgment are going to go, whoa, whoa, that's a plan. <laughs> we didn't get it. You know, we didn't want it. We still don't want it. I think honestly is where they'd be. But they're still going to see this is an incredible plan. This is, this is, this is an amazing God. We didn't grasp that. Um, I, don't, I don't think anybody will sort of change their mind at that point, because that's why they are where they are. But I, I'm just saying, I think we'll see that. Um, I, I'll just point out, the other, marked in him with a seal. We'll talk more about this next week for sure. But here, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, he reminds us the Holy Spirit was promised, right? Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And he says that it's a, it's a mark of a seal. So some of you who uh, were, at, well, two of you, who were at Paragon, and we talked about Esther, and those of you who remember when I've talked about Esther before, or who have read it, the king 
takes his signet ring and he gives it to Haman and Haman seals the decree to kill all the Jews with that ring. It's, it's a promise. And remember the king says that decree cannot be overturned. It's a stupid law, but it's also kind of a nice picture of, of this because it's saying once you have that signet ring and you seal it, it's saying this is from the king and the king will never revoke his promise. And that's what Paul, that's the imagery Paul's using here, that the Holy Spirit is that seal that will never be revoked. That promise will not be undone. And, and he says, he's a deposit. It's a down payment. Guaranteeing what? Our inheritance. All those spiritual blessings that we're going to feel at some point, they're all there. They're all there. They're in that account in the heavenly realms, right? We have them. But we have the Holy Spirit as a deposit for that moment of final redemption. It's there as a promise. It's there to let us know. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. When we stand before Jesus, we shall see him as he is, and we shall see that we are like him. These are all statements that tell us it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Because he chose us. Because we believed. (laughs) Because both are true. Amen? Isn't that an amazing way to start off a letter? Isn't that just awesome? And just like, this is the beginning? (laughs) And then, when you think of Ephesians... You think of wives submitting to their husband. I mean, look at what we've done to this book. I'm not, no, it's not your fault, Judy. I'm not picking on you. It's not your fault at all. It's actually not your fault at all. It's because when you teach this book in church, how do you apply everything I just taught? I mean, there are ways to do it, I'm sure. But it's not, evangelicals in particular like to teach verses that you can go out and apply right away, Right? So it's easy to skip over all this as, hey, this is cool, this is nice, this is awesome, says we're holy and blameless, therefore, submit to your husband. <laughs> you know, And you walk out of the church going, Ephesians is about submitting to my husband and working hard, right? It is about those things, but by golly, it isn't about those things. <laughs> you know, This is hard to preach and teach on a Sunday morning. It is and it isn't. It can be. I think over the years, my mindset's changed enough. I, I, I tend to teach these things when I can anyway. But even so, this is a better framework for it right? That's why I do this class, because it's easier to teach things like this here, because we're here. (laughs) I don't have to skip ahead to the application. We just read it. Clearly, believing this would change our lives. That's the application. Amen? I promised I'd let you go, and although I'm not as good as the Holy Spirit at keeping my promises, I want to at least let you go. So, uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Just, I just pray you take the, just that, that snippet we looked at today, just that one sentence, that one very long sentence of Paul's And I pray that you would just uh, inspire us, Lord. Strike us with awe. Move us to a place where we begin to see you, Lord. Help us to trust that that Holy Spirit is is a guarantee, is a deposit. That's a seal from you, that we have a promise from you, Lord, because you chose us, Lord. Help us to revel in that. Help us to rejoice in that, Lord. And don't let fears or or concerns about uh, about things that, that don't come into play at this moment keep us from reveling in that, Lord. If it if it makes us arrogant or conceited or, or, or self-righteous, then we've missed the point. Then we've missed it. We're not reveling in the right thing. But, but Lord, I believe if we revel in this, if we revel in this understanding, it makes us humble. And it, it helps us to walk in that righteousness. And it helps us to walk in confidence. It helps us to, to fulfill the, 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 the commandments that are given in Ephesians, Lord. The, the ways you tell us we ought to live make more sense if we understand that we are part of such a big picture such an amazing plan. Thank you that nothing is outside of your plan. Lord, I know as I walk out of here today and as the rest of us walk out of here today, we will immediately come face to face with the daily dailies of life. 
and we will have our financial stresses and we will have our relationship stresses and we will have our physical ailments and we will have all these things and they are real and you care about them, God, and you care about us. But I just pray that as we, as we do deal with what we have to deal with, as we move forward in what we have to move forward in, as we make wise decisions and do the hard work and face the trials that we encounter, I just pray that somehow these words that we've read here would inspire us and give us a sense of awe and glory so that we could, like Paul, even in the midst of prison, speak and understand, not speak even, but just believe such incredible promises and that the idea that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms would actually make a difference to our life on the earthly realm. These things we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, who bought us the redemption by his blood and the forgiveness of our sins, who showers us lavishly with the riches of the glorious grace of God. Amen.